This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Hey, I need a favor from you listeners. I need to tap your network. If you know anyone who is really good with numbers, interested in accounting, bookkeeping, finance, has a little bit of experience in that stuff, but they're not happy with their current career prospects, whether they're in a job or they're looking at the job market, whether they have a degree or they don't have a degree, if they're good at that kind of stuff and they're not really excited about their career prospects, I want you to send them to isaac.ceteris.com. I want you to send them there to check out Ceteris, which is an amazing opportunity to join a fast-growing startup and help small businesses. What Ceteris does is they help small businesses. They automate their accounting and bookkeeping processes for them, and it is an amazing team over there at Ceteris. So if you know somebody who needs a job that they love, that they can sink their teeth into, that has meaning and is interesting and flexible and dynamic, and they've got that kind of number skill set, send them to isaac.ceteris.com. Thanks for your help. This week on the podcast, we've got a conversation about C.S. Lewis and liberty between Isaac and Anthony Caprio. This first appeared on the Free Cities podcast, which is a podcast featuring deep conversations and interviews with people working to create a freer world. If you're interested in liberty and human prosperity, it's definitely worth checking out. In the episode, there's a lot of great discussion about C.S. Lewis, his background, his major intellectual influences, how his ideas fit well into classical liberal thought and a lot of other topics, as well as some C.S. Lewis recommendations. If you're a fan of C.S. Lewis, you'll really enjoy this. And if you're not, you're probably going to be curious to check out his work by the end of it. Enjoy the episode. So, um, Isaac, before we get into uh, this topic, um, I know you're a big fan of C.S. Lewis, so am I. Um, I wanted to run through a quick thumbnail sketch of who C.S. Lewis is for our listeners, because um, I don't want to assume that everyone here has heard of him. Um, but I, I think that his writings um, have had a strong influence on the liberty movement, and I don't think that it gets talked about as often as it should. Um, so I'm going to run through a quick sketch. If I leave out any details, please uh, please correct me or, or fill in our listeners. Sure. So uh, C.S. Lewis um, was born in Northern Ireland in 1898. Um, he was from a, a fairly well-to-do family. He had a brother named Warney that uh, he was really close to his whole life. Um, when he was young, he insisted that everyone call him Jack, and that was his nickname for the rest of his life. Um, his mother died when he was very young, and that impacted his life immensely. Um, he was sent away to a lot of boarding schools, and uh, consequently, he came to hate school. Um, he was <laughs> he was very, very adamant in that, and... Um, he came to see schools as as like a kind of kind of prison. Um, he had bad experiences with uh, with headmasters and with teachers and with with students. He felt like it was a prison. Um, he had a really great tutor that he went to that was very strong in logic, um, and it it kind of shaped his mind into being a very logical and, and very clear thinker. Um, after C.S. Lewis uh, got done with primary school, he um, he actually went into World War I, um, and 
he he was injured in battle there and then uh, came back later on became um, a professor of medieval literature at uh, Oxford College and a writer and he became a contemporary of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and uh, G.K. Chesterton among others and they had a, a writing club called the uh, the Inklings um, where they would get together and, and write different stories. Um, C.S. Lewis started out as an atheist, later on converted to being to being a Christian. Um, so anyway, I think I've kind of given a broad, broad overview of his work. Um, did I leave out anything really important in that bio? No, I mean, I, th- I think you really covered the basics. You know, he's, he's probably most well-known by most people for the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the seven-book um, series, sort of children's stories, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and, and those books. Um, but he has so many, I mean, he was a professor of literature, so he has a lot of literary criticism, um, you know, books sort of on uh, famous works of, of literature, but he has so much other fiction and nonfiction that I didn't know about as a kid, um, and that's really what got me hooked to Lewis as both a thinker and a writer, because there's kind of two, he's very clear thinker um, and really good at laying out his arguments, but he's also just so entertaining as a writer and that combination of really clear logic and very witty and entertaining writing uh, is just, it really hooked me early on. But yeah, great bio. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with, with you about his style of writing. And he's one of the, you know, he's one of the few authors that I feel like I know him. Like he died more than 20 yeah. years before I was born, but I honestly feel like he's a friend, you know, um, uh, especially the way that he can simplify really complex ideas, um, especially moral ideas. I think that he's probably the best writer that I've ever read um, for for explaining what evil is and how evil works um, as kind of like a, a systematic um, process or, or, or like a force. Um, I don't know if, if you had... Uh, had similar um, similar thoughts about that. Uh, yeah, so, you know, you mentioned Lewis being an influence on the liberty movement, and I think he is largely behind the scenes. Um, not too many people would probably explicitly associate him with, you know, the classical liberal tradition. But for me, as weird as it sounds, even though he didn't directly write on political theory hardly ever, I would say that he's probably the biggest influence in terms of me becoming uh, a libertarian and actually becoming increasingly radical in that direction. I, for, for three reasons. The first, Lewis really got me into ideas, period. I mean, I was probably 16 and I didn't really read books. I wasn't a ideas person. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't very heady. I played sports. I played music. I, you know, had a good time. Um, I picked up The Great Divorce which is still my favorite book. I mean, it's short. That, it's that's actually really, my favorite too. Yeah, I mean, it's so insightful. It's it's just, there's so much in it. It's really a beautiful book. Um, but it's also sentimental to me because it was the first book that like opened me up to the world of ideas. I read it and I was enthralled. And so I just kept reading everything I could get my hands on by Lewis because I liked his writing style and he had some, some you know, challenging ideas. And that kind of got me into philosophy more generally. I started this obsession with the question of free will that led me to political philosophy and everything that I kind of absorbed with Lewis that was like, that just rang true. Like, yes, that's true. 
it all continued to ring true as I got into political philosophy and got into libertarian ideas, even though, again, there wasn't there was rarely any explicit direct connection. So just kind of opening me up to ideas was, was the first way. And then there are two other things that I think make Lewis a powerful influence for my libertarianism. One is that, uh, or I guess number two, not to confuse. So number one, he got me into ideas. Number two, I think Lewis primed me for Mises and Hayek. And, and here's what I mean. For Mises, which is to me the, my, the greatest classical liberal thinker, Human Action is the most phenomenal book. Lewis primed me for Mises in terms of methodology. So when you read Lewis, I can't, you can help me here. I think it's in Mere Christianity. It could be in Miracles, um, but it's in one of his essays, and he's making the case for the existence of the moral law. And he makes this this case, I think, Mere Christianity. Yeah. yeah, it is Mere Christianity. Okay, so he says, you know, if we analyze the way that a rock behaves when it falls to the ground or any of the other things outside of us in nature— we use the laws of nature, we use the methods of science, not because they are superior to using logic or reason, but because when it comes to, um, when it comes to those external objects, that's all we have access to. But with man, we are men, we are human. So we have, he uses this phrase, we have inside knowledge. We know what it feels like to be us. So that gives us access to an additional level of analysis that we can't use when analyzing other things. And so he's he leans on this inside knowledge to draw out things that are, you know, universal parts of the human experience. The fact that we feel guilt over certain things. And he, you know, he sort of builds his argument and reasons to the existence of a moral law. Now, whether or not you agree with the argument, his methodology really stuck with me. And when I picked up Mises for the first time, I identified immediately this same approach, this deductive a priori approach to the economic sciences, where Mises says, look, there's nothing wrong with the physical sciences and their methods, but we get to do more than just that when it comes to analyzing human action, because we are human, because we have inside knowledge. We can know things about humans that we can't know about atoms and physical matter, and that allows us to analyze in a different way. We can start with these axioms that are universally true and logically valid. And that was so powerful for me. And I, and I think I was primed for that because of uh, Lewis. That, yeah, that's, that's really cool. I, I hadn't thought of Lewis as being a, a primer for, um, for Mises. But, um, you know, I think they both came from that same, um, that same classical liberal school. And, and, and when, I, when I say that, I'm talking more about like that enlightenment thinker um, sort of uh, like, like very based on, on logic exactly, and, and building out universal truths from, from reason alone. It, exactly. Yeah. That, that kind of like a Euclidean, um, you know, I don't know if I want to say school of thought, but, but, but sort of very logical mindset, you know, um, and I, I, I honestly do think that they both came from that same sort of Western European tradition in that sense. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Well, yeah. Uh, no, C.S. Lewis. I mean, he he spent his uh, his career studying um, medieval literature and um, and philosophy, and uh, you know, I, I think a lot of that was born out of that that time period. Um, they, well, they were both very influenced by Aristotle. 
um, and sort of the Western analytic philosophical tradition, and they were both fairly skeptical of sort of postmodern philosophy or continental philosophy. Um, so you definitely see some parallels in that in that thinking, but a little bit more directly to the political philosophy stuff. So I, I think Lewis also primed me for Hayek in a very different way. And my, I mean, Hayek covers a lot of ground, but but my like sort of core Hayekian insights that I draw from from his work is a fundamental humility about what humans can and can't know. And this problem of knowledge, like this is why planned economies don't work because prices convey information that humans don't have access to otherwise. We're not smart enough to know how many resources should go to this, that, and the other thing, who should do what. We need all these individuals pursuing their self-interest to generate these price signals that are you know, an incentive wrapped in information or information wrapped in an incentive, however you want, want to look at it. And, and this decentralizes these spontaneous orders you know, Hayek's, I say, the pretense of knowledge, um, all of his talk about sort of scientism, this obsession that, you know, we can order and plan things. And, and he's constantly fighting back against that and saying, no, it needs to be this open process for the truth to emerge. And that is so, so much in line with Lewis. You see it especially in the Space Trilogy. Uh, yes. The final book, That Hideous Strength, it's yes. sort of this dystopian scientistic you know villains they're trying to centrally plan and sanitize the world they want it clean and neat and tidy and everything to be rational and again lewis is is huge into reason and logic as a thinker but understanding that society is this complex order and it's got to be messy and organic and emergent and that fundamental humility about our inability to plan and control things that bleeds through, and, and and that probably Lewis was hugely influenced by Milton, um, the famous poet Milton, and you can see actually the second book in the Space Trilogy, Paralandra, is almost a, it's almost a retelling of Paradise Lost, Milton's epic poem, um, in on a different planet with an alternate ending. But Milton had this great essay, Areopagitica, which is about free speech, and the need to allow dangerous, bad doctrines, things in poor taste to be printed. Um, he's, he's opposing this, these laws that the star chamber in England was imposing to, to get rid of, you know, like bad, bad literature. And he's, and he's defending it saying you sort of need this process. You need to be intellectually humble enough to know that you can't just have smart people decide the truth, even if they're right. Most of the time compared to sort of the masses, the danger is too high. You need an open process where truth and falsehood can grapple in the marketplace of ideas, sort of. And so there's just this fundamental humility about humans' ability to control and plan things that um, is is so in line with Hayek. I always I always imagine like I wish that Hayek and Lewis could have met because they were they were in England at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that that would have been really cool. Um, yeah, I would have, I would have paid a lot of money to to go to that. I, w- I would have loved to have been like at a session of the Inklings, you know, with uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh uh, man, Madeline LaEngle, who y- wrote yeah. uh, *Wrinkle in Time*, she was part of the Inklings. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's these great stories too of Tolkien um, when Lewis brought his manuscripts for the Chronicles of Narnia. Tolkien <laughs> would, would mock them and call them like you know, babe stories for babies, and he he thought they were too allegorical too direct too silly 
Um, so even even good friends uh, don't always appreciate each other's work. It, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, it speaks a lot to uh, Lewis's confidence in his own in his own writings, you know, because I know he greatly respected Tolkien. I mean, that was like one of his best friends. And uh, that he would still go out and publish it. And I'm eternally grateful to Lewis for publishing the Chronicles of Narnia. That was how I first came across his work as a kid. And um, I go back and reread those stories about about every seven years or so. And, and there's so much in there that you don't pick up on when you're a kid. So many subtle yeah. things about human nature. Yeah, exactly. And and that's why I go back and read them every seven years or so. Because it's, it's almost like reading a, a, a brand new book. Um, because there are so many different layers and subtleties in in those books, and I, I seem to get more and more out of it. Um, the you know when I read it in a different phase of my life as I as I go along. Um, I'm glad that you brought up uh, that you brought up that hideous strength. I you know when I when I first read that hideous strength, it was actually only a few years ago, but. Um, I was like standing up, you know, like cheering through most of it because it it was it's like his most libertarian work that yeah. um, that he ever did. It's it's definitely his most scathing critique of government, um, of central planning, um, of social engineering, um, and and throughout all of his work, he has this kind of deep skepticism of of political power and uh, political authority. Um, I would not say that he was an anarchist the way that Tolkien was. I would say that he was a minarchist. Um, you know, when you when you look at the characters and, and his work and stuff and the and the leaders, um, their their main role, you know, in in any position of authority is, is mainly to arbitrate disputes and, and to defend the people that are that are kind of under their care. But um, he does seem to have this this very strong skepticism of um, of political power and and the realization that that power does corrupt. Yeah, yeah. I feel like if you if you give Lewis enough time and he really focused on political theory, you know, kind of like Hayek, if he would have lived longer, he, he said if he was a younger man, he might have become become an anarchist. He might have gotten there. But there's definitely a bit of a romantic strain in. Lewis that has like sort of great um, royalty or kings or noble people or obviously a, a belief in in God this you know divine power that's that's that is benevolent but I think it'd be easy to see that on the surface and be like okay his you know his children's stories there's kings and queens and they're like good guys come on you know those are like rulers those are bad I think there's something really important to know about Lewis he was very, very sharp on this concept of inequality being real, not being a bad thing, but not meaning that the better people, you know, those who are more equal should rule. There's this fabulous quote he has um, where he says, you know, Aristotle thought some men were only fit to be slaves and I do not contradict him. But my problem with slavery is that I see no men fit to be masters. Yeah. And again, there's that humility in there. But I think, and, and Lewis has a whole essay, um, it's actually Screwtape Proposes a Toast, which is a, a follow-up to the Screwtape Letters. And it was an essay published in the Saturday Evening Post. Um, and it's this whole speech given by this this demon in, in hell to all these other demons and goblins and whatever else. And most of it is about the concept of democracy and the concept of equality and how the devils need to basically turn these into these buzzwords that nobody really thinks about 
and try to get everyone so obsessed with equality, which really just means I'm as good as you, which is obviously untrue, but it will breed envy if people start focusing on trying to make everyone equal. Envy is going to come out of that. They're going to do all these horrible, destructive things. And he, I mean, really powerful insights about the dangers of these concepts of trying to make people, you know, materially equal. And, and it, Lewis did, did not believe, you know, he believed in sort of being treated equally in terms of your dignity as a human or equally under the law or whatever have you. But this concept of inequality, which is basically the modern social justice movement. I mean, go read Screwtape Proposes a Toast. You can Google it. You can find it for free. And it is a powerful, powerful sort of diabolical look at like, you know, imagine these devils. This is exactly what they want. Everyone to fight for something that's so easy to think is good. Democracy, equality. Um, but it's really a very sinister way to let envy start to, to turn people against each other. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I mean, I think that, you know, for me, when I, I, I think I started to say before, um, he was the one that was the best at describing sort of the, the nature of, of evil and, and how it, how it acts, how it behaves. Um, and I, I think a lot of times, evil uses this this kind of centralized authority that, that C.S. Lewis was really good at, at, at pointing out um, to kind of implement its its laws or its social engineering um, to try and force people from being the, the creative individuals that they are and try and form them into some other mass, you know, that, that, that totally goes against, like, truth and, and creation and, and free will. Um, Anyway, I think that he did just an amazing job of, of clarifying that and, and, and explaining that. $50,267. That is the average starting salary for Praxis graduates. Their average age 21. Most of them do not have a college degree. Many of them came straight out of high school. All of them wanted more than classrooms and studying and fretting over GPAs and graduating and shooting out resumes, hoping one landed somewhere that they didn't absolutely hate. They chose Praxis to get into the real world and work with amazing, fast-growing startups and small businesses right now. Why wait? To learn by doing. To reflect and study and push yourself and have coaching and, and mentoring to improve on what you're doing and then to go back to doing it again. That back and forth process of real world engagement in a business setting and reflecting on it, self-guided curriculum, that's what Praxis is all about. In less than one year, graduating the program starting at an average of $50,267. That's after a paid apprenticeship during the program. See, you get paid to apprentice while you're in the program with these businesses. And when you're done, you get hired on. That is a deal that no other institution can match. You you can't get that kind of exposure and that kind of net cost of zero experience that leads you to a fulfilling life and career that quickly anywhere else. Go to discoverpraxis.com and join. 
One of okay, my. So, so I want to push. I want to push something further here, which is yeah. probably going to piss off people on both sides. Uh oh, go for it. <laughs> uh, I'll probably irritate Christians or fans of Lewis, uh, as well as objectivists or fans of Rand. But oh, I'm going here to we go. Here we go. Okay. That Lewis actually was incredibly Randian in a lot of ways. Now, Rand herself uh, did not like him. She I, hated I remember him. Yeah. there was a there's a book um, that has her marginalia, like her notes in the margin of it, different books she it, read. It's Abolition and of it, Man. Yeah, that's yeah. right. She, Abolition of Man, and she she's like you know basically just her marginalia is just like stupid, bad argument, you know what, <laughs> just like riffing on it. Um, but uh, apart from you know, I, they both have a very Aristotelian foundation. Although right. Lewis. Um, Rand would probably accuse him of being a Platonist a little bit too much sometimes. But here's what I mean. My core takeaway from Rand, and there's obviously so much more there, and objectivists, I'm not, I'm not trying to like, you know, ignore all this stuff, but my core thing, the thing I value most about Rand's work and take away from all of it is you don't owe anyone anything, and no one owes you anything. And achievement and sort of greatness is not something to be ashamed of. You don't owe anyone equality or you're not trying, you know, you, you know, be apologetic about your greatness and oh, focus on this other person, this sort of false humility. It's like, no, human achievement is amazing. Be proud of it. Be yourself. That's, that's wonderful. That is very, very present in Lewis's work. Yes. Um, when yes. he talks about education, I mean, he hates this concept of trying to make everybody win a little prize or an award. He, you know, he hates this concept of, as I mentioned before, this sort of phony striving for equality. He loves greatness and achievement, and there's definitely a nobody owes you anything; you owe nothing to anybody else. Now, that the where they diverge is that Lewis would also add like a, and you are nothing compared to God, so stay humble. Where Rand would be like. There is no God, you know, you are great. There is nothing to, you know what I mean? There's right. a difference. There's, there's huge divergences, but that core insight that you don't need to apologize for being great and you don't need to try to feel guilty um, and you don't owe anybody anything and they don't owe you anything. I, I think it's there. I absolutely agree with you. And I'm so glad that, that I had you on the show because I, I have thought the same thing for years now. I, so I first Got introduced to Ayn Rand a little bit later in life, like I was in my probably my late twenties when I was introduced to her work, and it was through some people that I worked with. They were, I would say, heavily objectivist, um, and I remember reading her stuff and thinking, "Okay, if Ayn Rand was a Christian, she would be C.S. Lewis." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I remember bringing that up to these people, and they were just like horrified. I tried to get someone to read. Um, to read the Great Divorce, you know, which, which is you know, it's like eighty pages, right? Yeah. And it, and it's it's a great book. I mean, I absolutely love that book. Oh, I mean, whether even if you're an atheist, and you know, you know, just just the the parable, the insight into human nature, and all these conversations, and it's amazing. Well, yeah, and and that was and that was my point is if you want to understand like how people get in the way of their own happiness, read the Great Divorce. Yes. Because it I mean, is that is all about people becoming anti-life, as Rand would say, submarining themselves by you know all this guilt and shame and stuff. Absolutely, a hundred percent. So I mean, they they line on those points so perfectly. And I remember the the person that I took this book to, um, he didn't even get past the introduction, the introductory page, and uh, he he was just completely misreading a lot of 
a lot of what Lewis was saying, and I, and I pointed it out to him, but he just like mentally could not get past that. And I think that a big part of it was because Ayn Rand personally didn't like C.S. Lewis. And, and, you know, Ayn Rand did a lot of things, and I, I agree with you. All the things that you said that you got get out of Ayn Rand's work, I get the same things out of it. And I, and I appreciate her, and I appreciate what she's contributed. Um, but, you know, she, she must have had a really short temper as well because she she was also really quick to alienate a lot of people i mean there's the famous dispute between her and murray rothbard um you know where he was kind of banned from her circles and then he wrote that play mozart is a red kind of bashing her um yeah the number of people who were sort of booted from her circles (laughs) it seems it's pretty high it's pretty high yeah it's it's pretty high my one of my favorite um episodes of the tom wood show is he and michael malice talking about ayn rand because it explains so much for me that i didn't know or understand before but um anyway there's a couple of greats um jeff riggenbach has a series called the tradition of liberty Okay, and you can get them. I think in podcast format or on YouTube. I don't know if you. I think they're hosted by the Mises Institute. But there's like I don't know thirty or forty of these little ten or twenty minute things on all these different individuals in the classical liberal tradition. And there's okay. at least a couple on Rand that give all kinds of these sort of behind the scenes personal stories and and sort of her circle. They're really fun if you look that up. Um, but but you you know you made me realize as you were talking, the Great Divorce is actually. It's actually quite Randian in, in several ways, not only as we talked about the sort of how each of these individuals represent kind of the, the Wesley mooches or the, um, you know, these, these sort of sad or disgusting villains in, in Rand's novels um, in the way that they're kind of undermining their own uh, achievement and sense of life. But also, this is in all of Lewis's work, but especially in this one, this clear, putting down a clear, like, morality is real good morality is real and objective it exists outside of our own subjective interpretation of it um there is good and there is evil not not a lot of thinkers especially in the modern age not even a lot of classical liberal thinkers are willing to to do that and and draw that line and be really clear about it lewis and rand both were in fact that's where the title the great divorce comes from lewis is writing this as a response to a to a work called the marriage of heaven and hell which is sort of like heaven and hell are not so different and lewis is like no the great divorce is heaven and hell are complete opposites but what's cool about that work is this this obsession with free will that lewis is so so keen on it's not like heaven and hell, hell is this place of eternal pain and you get sent there by some powerful God or you get rewarded with heaven. It's the opposite. You, whatever you choose is where you go. And most people choose hell and they don't even realize they've chosen hell. They're in this gray, bleak, lonely, depressing place, slowly moving further and further apart, kind of starting to go crazy. But it's comfortable because it's the known. And heaven is dangerous and risky and it's beautiful and gorgeous but overwhelming. Like it takes you a while to become sturdy enough to even handle it. But you can choose either at any given time. And that and that's another theme that I really took away from Lewis that, you know, there's this famous line in the Chronicles of Narnia where they say Aslan, but Aslan's a lion. Is he safe? And the character says, of course he's not safe, but he's good. And I think that's the way that, that I view liberty and freedom like there's nothing about it that guarantees safety you know you fall into the nirvana fallacy and say but if we don't have this regulation 
then this could happen. But there's no world in which there is safety. Like that's what you have to that's what you have to understand. There's no world that's perfectly safe. So the question is, which one is better? And this idea that like freedom is dangerous, an open, free society, you know, free will, you can make bad choices, but it's good, you know? Yeah. And I went off on a tangent. No, I'm glad. I, I love that topics. tangent. That is that is why I brought you onto the show, um, because you I think you just hit some solid gold there. Um, yeah, I, I, I really I really appreciated that rant. Um, do you, yeah. but do you remember, I, I'm a little rusty on my, on some of my Lewis reading, honestly, I know he has a few essays that are a little bit more directly connected to, in addition to Screwtape Proposal of Toast, to sort of political stuff. I mean, certainly on education, but do you remember any in particular? I'm, I'm sort of, I feel like I know they're there, but I can't think of them. Um... I know he has God in the Dock as a collection of essays. Right. God, God in the Dock, uh, Mere Christianity, you know, the beginning of it goes a lot into, uh, into natural law. Um, and then, you know, his, his most direct critique of government, I think, is that hideous strength. Um, he wrote another article kind of later on in life um, where it, it was called um, The Magician and the Magi- Magic and Science are Twins. Um, I think, and, and it was kind of a strong critique of, um, not, not of like the scientific process or the scientific method, but of science as being kind of a cult. Um, what Lewis or what a uh, Hayek would call scientism. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's right. I, I forgot about that essay. I was probably 19 when I read that. I need to dig that up again. Yeah. That's, that's a really great essay. So, you know, in that he, he's kind of making the, um, making the comparison between uh, the magicians of, you know, medieval times or ancient times and, uh, and modern-day scientists and um, bringing up a lot of kind of eerie parallels, you know, between the two. Um, and, you know, so he, he points out that, uh, you know, magicians did things that um, other people couldn't explain or really understand, and, and science in its own way um, produces results that... Um, that seem like magic, you know, in, in their, in their only, astonishment. Only those who, who know, you know, the special magic words and incantations can even understand it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it, exactly. And, and in both ways, they, they both kind of end up being sort of their own, their own religion, you know, and, in, in that, um, not everybody completely understands them or, or understands what, what's going on. And, and so there's sort of these buzzwords that, that come up about it. Um, and there's sort of a, a devotion, you know, to it. Um, but they can both have, um, they, they can both have kind of sinister, uh, sinister results or sinister consequences. Um, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're careless with them, um, was, was kind of his point. It, it's a great article. I'll link to it in the show notes. Sort of what, maybe this would be a, a good final thought. Sure. I think... I think in many ways, Lewis was a very much a practitioner of or, or operated with uh, rational choice theory. Now, he wouldn't have called it that. He probably wasn't familiar with um, – I don't think he had much familiarity with, with sort of the economic sciences directly. But he had that, that intellectual humility I mentioned and that he was never quick to – discard something that seemed silly or superstitious, even though he was highly 
logical and, and very good at testing things through reason. But he understood the complexity of human nature and would never just assume, oh, people are doing this because they're stupid or just giving himself a quick off the hook. He would sort of assume, well, maybe there's some reason I don't yet understand, which is why he was always so sort of soft on he, he was never like critical of magic and medieval thing like he weaves arthurian legend into and you know the greek myths into a lot of his work he has a a retelling of the myth of cupid and psyche which is really cool till we have faces but he was really into this sort of you know what you could call like mystical silliness but not for silly reasons so it makes me think of i always wish lewis could read the work of peter leeson who's my favorite contemporary economist and all of leeson's work he's using rational choice theory this assumption that When we see something we don't understand, we can't let ourselves off the hook by saying, oh, people do that just because they're stupid or irrational or they don't know what's good for them. That's too easy and it doesn't explain much. If you see in medieval times people doing uh, putting insects on trial um, or, you know, determining guilt or innocence by sticking your hand in a pot of water and seeing if it's burned, we say, oh, well, they're just dumb and superstitious. But that's too easy. So Leeson uses economic uh, analysis to understand what was going on, given the institutions that they had, given the incentives around them, and given the other options, why would this emerge as a way to sort of keep order? And he finds highly rational reasons, like this emerged because it was actually better than the alternatives and did a decent job. And so what appeared to be silly superstitions, or bizarre practices that have make no sense. Again, this doesn't mean there is no such thing as like good or evil or, you know, that like child sacrifice is good because it can be explained through economic efficiency or anything like that. It's not about the morality of it, but it's understanding that there's something more at work and we shouldn't be so quick to dismiss because we're enlightened and scientific and say, oh, well, they used to do this because they were dumb. And I think that's very much a part of the way Lewis sees the world. He's, he's never quick to dismiss something that seems strange or mystical or superstitious just because people are dumb and unenlightened. Because I think he knows enough. He's humble enough about science to know that, well, science can also be wrong. But he's also in, insightful enough about human nature to know that you know these things evolve, these institutions and norms evolve for a good reason. Yeah, that that is a great insight. And, um, you know, he's got another famous quote. um, I can't remember what it's from, but he's basically talking about uh, about myth and how myth is something, um, you know, wonderful. Basically, myth is is some kind of great insight into into truth, into life. But it's it's taken down by um, by by something that's that's kind of kind of dumb and, and barbaric in, in, in the way that it gets that it gets retold or, or gets translated. Um, so he also had another great quote kind of speaking to your point about, um, you know, in, in medieval times when people burned witches at the stake, um, you know, that that was the wrong thing to do because witches don't actually exist. But at the time, they, people thought that they did. And, and he goes... On to say, you know, if there were actually people committed to human destruction that um, had taken an oath to the devil, well, then wouldn't that be the right response, you know, to, to try and, and get rid of them, to try and try and take them out? One other, one other thing that I wanted to bring up um, was Rothbard in the in the Ethics of Liberty um, quotes C.S. Lewis um, quite at length, and I, I guess I, you know, in the Liberty Movement, I I guess I would consider myself more of a Rothbardian. Um, 
but he he quotes at length from um, from I, I think it's from Mere Christianity um, on on natural law and uh, um, basically on like the the restitution um, of of criminals and how how restorative um, restorative law is is kind of like the more morally sound um, way to go. But anyway, just just kind of wanted to bring up um, his influence with uh, with Rothbard. But I think that we've had a, a great talk today. I think we've covered a lot of ground. I don't know too many people that have covered the connection between uh, between Ayn Rand and, and C.S. Lewis. So that was a lot of fun. <laughs> Rothbard was always is more uh, welcoming to thinkers who didn't agree with him on every single point. Uh, so I forgot that he was, I forgot that he quoted Lewis in there. That's a good, that's a good, uh, good piece. Yeah. It's, it's one of my favorites. Um, for sure. So Isaac, thanks so much for being on the show today. Well, should we give people like a few places to start if they want to get into Lewis? Yeah, that, that is, that is what, what do you recommend? What, uh, okay, so, all right, here we go. So these would be the three, um, the great divorce, Great short little book that I mentioned. Uh, Screwtape Proposes a Toast, uh, an essay. You can Google that one and find it. And then the third one is a, is a lesser-known book by Lewis called Till We Have Faces. Yes. And it's his own retelling of the myth of Cupid and Psyche. And it takes a little while to get into, but what I love about that one is it's got these two sort of competing forces represented by two characters, which is kind of mysticism and reason, like a hardcore sort of philosophical you know, reason based guy. And then this mystical priest. And in the end, both of them turn out to basically be right in different ways. And it's really interesting. I think it really exemplifies Lewis's understanding that those two things are not necessarily in competition. What would you recommend? Well, those are really great, uh, great choices. Um, I would recommend the, the Chronicles of Narnia. Like I said, I still go back and read them every seven years or so. And then I would also recommend the Space Trilogy, um, especially um, that hideous strength for anyone that is a libertarian, um, especially anyone that's a Christian and libertarian. To me, it's the book that best combines those two two values. Awesome. Hey, this has been a blast. Been a lot of fun. Hey, thanks for being so patient. Um, our our audience won't know this by the time I get done editing it, but we had a, had a lot of drop calls and, and Isaac was a great sport. So thanks so much for being on the show. <laughs> You got it, Anthony. Okay, take care. Hey, if you're a fan of the show, do me a huge favor. Go to iTunes, give it a rating or review. A rating is only a simple click of a button, or if you're on your phone, a tap of a finger. And it will help people find the show a lot easier. And if you have a little extra time, write a review. What you think about the show? Honest opinion. That stuff goes a long way in giving more exposure to the podcast. What do you get out of all of it? You get the pleasure of knowing that as more people start listening, you get to say, I was there first. Thank you.